Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Velarkis, and I am an expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist. And today I am so excited to have two special guests on the podcast. We have Lauren Atkins from Encore Nutrition and Taylor Blythe. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Steph. Such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. It's awesome to be here. Thanks so much. So today's topic of the podcast actually comes by request. Um, I have had a, quite a few requests in the past and I remember reaching out to the Encore Nutrition team uh, uh, quite a while back now and being like, we need to do a podcast on this topic and it is cancer and fertility. So Lauren is a oncology dietitian at Encore Nutrition and Taylor Blythe is gone through this experience herself and she has so generously been here with us today to share her experience, which we will get to really shortly. So we super appreciate both of you being here today. So Lauren, we might start with you if that's okay. Can you tell us a bit about who you are, what you do at Encore, and how did your interest in oncology nutrition come about? Yeah, for sure. Um, look, my career has really been embedded in oncology since day one. So I started my graduate year in cancer care as a dietitian and I've worked in both adult and children children's cancer centres across Victoria, um, spending close to a decade in practice, clinical practice and research. Um, and I was always really drawn to cancer as a dietitian because of the huge impact that we can have on somebody's health, well-being, and even their mindset through a cancer experience. And we know that it's an area where there's just so much strong evidence that nutrition and food makes a difference. So it was really rewarding and always has been for me. So after a decade in the hospital system, I then went on to co-found my own business, Encore Nutrition, where myself and the team provide um, oncology care to those who aren't linked in with the hospital service. Um, we've been involved in a range of different things, education, research. Um, we have our own podcast as well, Steph, as you mentioned. And, yeah, that's that's where Taylor and I met, but we actually met um, well before now. So maybe, Taylor, if you can tell us a bit about maybe how you met Lauren because now we're all, like, dying to know. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, cliffhanger. Um, we're all dying to know now. And maybe talk us through a little bit about your personal experience to date for our listeners, um, just so we can get a bit of a feel for, for where you're at. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Lauren and I met back in 2018. Um, so I was basically born without a thyroid gland um, and I was having struggles 
all throughout high school and um, early adulthood with um, losing weight. And I tried a few like fad diets, I guess, that just weren't working because they don't. Um, And yeah, so I just um, went onto Facebook and asked one of the, you know, local community hubs who, um, who's great diet, a great dietitian around, and um, so many people recommended Lauren. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll jump on. So I um, started seeing Lauren then, and um, she's changed my look on food a lot. Um, definitely eating a lot more greens than what I used to. Um, and can I just can I just add in there we uh, we have a nickname, don't we, Taylor? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Green Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so back then uh, she changed my life then and when I was uh, recently diagnosed with breast cancer, Lauren uh, had the great knowledge to then continue helping me on this new journey. Wow, what a journey to date. And how long ago did that diagnosis of of breast cancer come into your world, Taylor? Um, So about a week after I turned 26, I found a lump, which was in April this year. Um, I found the lump and then about three weeks later, um, it had grown from like two centimetres to about eight centimetres and they then diagnosed it as breast cancer. Gosh, I'm so sorry. And so this is also fresh and new for for you as well. And so what does life look like at the moment in terms of treatments and and I'm guessing lots of appointments and so on? So maybe can you give us a bit of a snapshot of what that's, if you're happy to, um, of what it's looking like for you at the moment? Yeah, so I've had three chemo treatments so far. Um, with my fourth being this Friday and then I'll have a few weeks break and then a 12-week um, single chemo for 12 weeks, uh, once a week for 12 weeks, um, and then a lumpectomy, I believe, at this stage. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a rough journey so far, but... Um, I'm just taking it one day at a time. Oh, absolutely. One step at a time is what we can do in these circumstances. And um, I I know as well in the the scheme of – uh, of life events, this is probably one of the biggest one, and I'm I'm actually one week after I just turned 26, so exactly what you said just like hit me straight in the in the heart of like oh wow like putting myself in your shoes about how that would feel, and so when you received that diagnosis, did did they mention anything around fertility preservation or what your options were, or was that something you started to seek out on your own um well that was kind of the last thought on my mind like I didn't really think about it but they sort of said we'll um we'll send a reference to a fertility doctor and um and we sort because mine was or is so aggressive they wanted to kind of get the ball rolling on chemo but they also wanted to try and do a round of egg retrieval at the same time so it was kind of very rushed 
Um, so I I only sort of had a two week window right. to do the egg retrieval process. Wow. Um, so we did the self injection, uh, self injecting of hormones for two weeks, and then um, the day before chemo started, I had the egg retrieval, um, oh and we were only able to get two eggs, but only one was freezable. Right, right. So. Um, <laughs> They did say I can try again at the end of chemo, but at this point I'm not really thinking yeah. about it. Oh, totally understandable. <laughs> and and looking back, like obviously it wasn't on your like literal radar, like, oh, my God, what am I going to do about my eggs? <laughs> but when they brought it up, how did, you, how did you respond? Were you like, oh, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I didn't think about that. Or, oh, my God, can I just get this out the way because I just really want to treat what's going on with my cancer? Well, at that point I was just sort of thinking, well, it's probably better to do it than not because mm. at the end of it we don't know what's, yeah. what will happen. So I was just like, yeah, let's do it. Mm. And then I was kind of focused on that um, and then I would be focused on the chemo when that came around. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Just, I can't imagine compressing an egg freezing process into two weeks. So just FYI to those listening who don't really have much awareness of what an egg freezing cycle might look like. It can generally take a couple months to get things up and going and and you kind of have a bit more time to prepare. But obviously in this circumstance, everything has to be kind of compressed as your um, your treatment becomes the, the top priority. How did you find the actual process of going through egg freezing, Taylor? Um, I I just kind of did it yeah. because I had to. No time to but, think about um, it. <laughs> the first few injections, my mum was doing it. Yep. So love God, love it. Yeah. She she was really good, and then I started doing it myself. Like the morning ones, she still did, but the evening ones, um, I was able to do myself. Yeah. So. Um, because she was going out for dinner and she's like, oh, you can meet me in the RSL car park and I'll do it. I'm like, no, I'm doing it myself. <laughs> what a look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's so innocent. Would have raised a few eyebrows. In the <laughs> I, I totally can imagine so many of my listeners can relate to that. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Lauren, obviously you were working with Taylor at Encore to help support her with her thyroid issues prior to her recent diagnosis. And I think as well now that obviously we've got a layering effect of, of two different things going on, it's it's certainly, again, so valuable to be working with a dietitian like yourself who has awareness of, of all of those things. Um, but I think as well we often – as a society in general, we often think about cancer being something that affects people after their reproductive years, but that isn't always really the case. So can you just shed some light, like mm. how common is cancer in people, say, under the age of 15 years um, of all the different types of cancers and maybe which ones are more likely in, in people who are younger? Yeah, look, and, and we know this, the stats of cancer – by the time we're 85, one in two Australians will be have been diagnosed. So the rates are really high when we do reach that older age bracket. But when we look at the reproductive years and say less than 50, 
um, the combined cancer incidence sits somewhere at around about 10%. So those who are less than 50, um, the rates are significantly lower. And we know that women in that sort of 25 to 49 age bracket are twice as likely to be diagnosed than men. So there is quite a significant difference between male and female diagnoses mm. um, in that less than 50 age bracket. But as, you, as you know, Taylor is a perfect example, her lump was found and, and there were so many other things that it mm. could have been because mm. she's young. Um, and I know Taylor can vouch for the the frustration and the confusion and the absolute emotional turmoil that you went through in being tested for a whole bunch of different things before eventually finding out what it actually was. And so I think it's important that we're all alert, not alarmed, um, and just aware that it's it is still possible and the the incidence is is there. Um, Obviously, we don't want it to impact our day-to-day life, but it can make a huge difference on somebody's life, particularly at a younger age group. It is going to impact their future, their body image, their sexual function and, of course, fertility. So it's really important to get it right. Absolutely. And do we see higher, uh, like, are there certain types of cancers that are more likely to occur in, say, a 25 to 49 age bracket? Let's just use that as an example in both yeah, women and absolutely. men. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So certainly there are different cancer types that are far more common in younger versus old, older mm. age groups. So, for example, bone and soft tissue cancers are more likely in younger people Um in, in younger adults in particular in, with the context of breast cancer, when a breast can- if there is a breast cancer diagnosis in someone who's younger, it is more likely to be in its later stages, so a bit more advanced or, or perhaps more aggressive. And we think maybe screening's not as effective when people are younger for breast mm. cancer and breast tissue is quite different. Um, so there are a few challenges when it comes to screening and diagnoses um, at different age groups within our population. And how can diet and lifestyle modification support people during their cancer experience or even, you know, emerging on the other side as a cancer survivor? Um, mm-hmm. How has how does that help people? I know you mentioned a little at, at the beginning and I've, I've had cancer touch my personal life in a number of ways and I've seen the the impacts that it can have both physically and mentally and and the role that nutrition can play in that um, myself but from a from obviously your expertise in the oncology arena um, what's I guess what's the evidence and and what have you witnessed in in your career in oncology nutrition um, and the impacts that it can have yeah look we know that nutrition and lifestyle plays a huge role in cancer care, not just in the context of prevention and preparation for treatment and surgery, but in managing and reducing side effects through treatment, enhancing tolerance to treatment, so allowing people to actually get maximal doses of different therapies. Good nutrition keeps people out of hospital. It supports recovery and rehabilitation from surgery, chemo, radiation, even just recovery between cycles, and I know Taylor can vouch for that, you feel far better when you're nourishing yourself in between your chemo cycles. 
but we also know that nutrition can impact the risk of cancer recurrence and so it can change the survival and the outlook for someone who has been touched by cancer and when we approach nutrition and diet in a really considered way through a cancer journey we can actually really nourish the relationship with food in our body because if you can imagine going through chemotherapy where you have changes in taste and appetite and you might feel sick you might feel tired all the time you do become a bit vulnerable and you might lose a bit of trust in your body and some of those signals that you became really reliant on when it comes to food and so there's a lot of psychological factors that come into play as well and I guess bringing that all together when when you asked about the strength of the evidence and the research very strong evidence that nutrition plays a big difference uh, plays a big role and the World Cancer Research Fund actually recommends that anyone who has been impacted by cancer past or present should see a dietitian for nutrition support. Absolutely agree. And I, I feel like um, the arena of fertility and and cancer, uh, I, I see so many similarities in care um, in terms of, you know, the way that treatments affect people is unique. The symptoms that emerge are just as worthy of paying attention to and trying to optimise quality of life in between uh, using nutrition and helping you recover between cycles and um, helping you from a mental health perspective and mood and how food can play a role with that as alongside psychological mm. help and the need for a multidisciplinary team and the, yeah, the emotional turmoil that can come about with with it, either of these diagnoses is is immense um, and it can be life altering for for not just you but people around you as well. So I see so much connection between these two worlds, um, and so when they cross over, I just find it so interesting how it all collides, and and that's really why I was inspired to to get you both on the podcast. So I appreciate you sharing that with us as well, Lauren. Um, I guess, Taylor, to, to add, if you don't mind, um, I guess what have you noticed about diet and lifestyle modification since you started treatment most recently and how's that either helped or what have you found hard? Um, I've definitely found that eating better has helped me bounce back a bit more between chemo cycles. So at the moment, mine are every two weeks, uh, one cycle every two weeks. So I've found like when I start getting really fatigued, if I eat a bit better, then I'll bounce back a lot quicker and have a lot better energized days leading up to the next chemo. Um, and then I can just have a bit more, um, even though we recently went through a lockdown and I couldn't really go out, I still found that I was able to have more energy to do things uh, like go for more walks or um, just have more time with or be able to not sleep as much. So I definitely find eating better and not eating more unhealthy helps you um, bounce back more. Um, but I've also mm. found hard things in regards to taste. Like sometimes I really want a smoothie and I know exactly what I'm craving, but once I've made it, it may not taste as nice as what I thought because my taste buds have come into play and it, it definitely is hard, but sometimes it's kind of mind over matter, I guess. 
Mm, sometimes it's just a little, the little <laughs> tweaks in a smoothie that can make it <laughs> all the more palatable <laughs> with with mm-hmm. taste changes. And that's that stuff about body trust, mm-hmm. right? You know, you you trust yourself to know that your strawberry smoothie is meant to taste like a strawberry mm-hmm. smoothie, and when it doesn't, you start to question things. And yeah. It's like being at a Heston Blumenthal restaurant when you don't really want to be there. <laughs> when the mandarin is filled with meat and you're like, what? <laughs> Hang on a minute. I just wanted a mandarin today. <laughs> Such a strange experience. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. well, thank you for sharing. And I think like what was so interesting about what you just reflected on there, Taylor, was it helped you bounce back and, and in between cycles and the frequency of your, of your chemo cycles. But then as well that you were able then to engage in other like health-promoting behaviours like going for a walk, which we know is great. And so it's it's funny how these things, well, it's not funny, it's obviously <laughs> evidence-based, but it's interesting how all these things link together and or even just giving you the energy to to not sleep so you can spend more time with your loved ones as well. So that's that's so valuable as well. So thank you so much for, for sharing your experience. Uh, Lauren, I guess coming back to you more on the, I guess, the quote-unquote clinical side, how does cancer itself or cancer treatments and one or the other or both impact female and male fertility or reproductive health? Can you give us a bit of a a rundown there? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a a kind of a top-level overview. Happy to take any further questions you've got. But the majority is impacted by cancer treatment because uh, only a small portion of diagnoses would actually impact reproductive organs or hormonal changes that would impact fertility. But uh, all different cancer types can impact fertility, both in males and females. So in Taylor's instance, having chemotherapy, we know that the majority of chemotherapy drugs actually work by targeting cells that rapidly divide. So those that replicate really quickly. And Cancer cells rapidly divide, so it's great. We're trying to target cancer cells, but we also know that reproductive cells rapidly divide. And so there's a bit of collateral damage that can happen to eggs um, as well as sperm production, um, either temporarily or uh, permanently when somebody's undergoing certain types of chemo. In radiotherapy, so radiation therapy, which is more of a targeted treatment, where radiation is delivered to the areas where the cancer is affected in the body. If somebody is having radiation to the pelvic region, then it can certainly impact male and female reproductive organs and therefore the hormones they produce. And in women, it can sometimes result in early menopause. If someone's receiving radiation to the brain, we know this can also impact the pituitary gland, which has a huge role in ovulation cycles in women's production but also in sperm production and sex drive in males. So fertility can be impacted in radiation to the brain. And then, of course, there's surgical procedures that involve removal or damage to reproductive organs or those surrounding organs. And I think that's important to know because even tampering with a prostate or a bladder can extend some intentional damage to really important reproductive structures. Um, So that can be quite challenging for both men and women. And, of course, there's also uh, hormonal therapies which inevitably do impact male and female fertility. Um, And sometimes they 
uh, it's unsafe to become pregnant while on those therapies and they can be quite long treatment courses. So lots of things that come into play and really important that young people in particular do get an opportunity to have discussions with fertility specialists just as Taylor did to explore that um, early on. Even perhaps when it's not on your radar, it's so valuable for it to be put on your radar because sometimes the damage uh, can be irreversible. Yeah, and you don't want to look back and go, oh, I wish I went to that consult. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's always about the option, right? It's all about options and, and whether what you pursue is then up to you and your treatment team as well. So absolutely. All right. Thanks so much for sharing. I have certainly like in my practice more from the fertility angle have come across a number of um, cases where we've had to work around um, cancer diagnoses, particularly in people's past. Um, So I've had quite a few couples where um, like a male-female couple and the male has had a history of testicular cancer and maybe only has one testicle. But sperm production seems to have renormalized because it's been many years ago and treatment was not necessarily affecting or hadn't affected their particular um, sperm counts and so on. So, yeah, I guess I guess as well the difference between female and, and male reproduction and the life cycle of our reproductive cells is also another consideration because men have that regenerative sense of sperm of you know every 64 to 72 days they're making new sperm and whereas with women we're we're born with all the eggs we'll ever have and they start to mature at different phases as we ovulate but we're carrying them with us the whole time and kind of breadcrumbing them (laughs) along our life cycle so to speak and so it's a completely different way to view things um and I guess egg freezing as well is a, a bit of a different procedure to compare to, say, freezing sperm mm. um, in terms of the level of medical intervention that's required and hormones. And interesting you mentioned the the difference between the male and the female eggs and sperm because there is a um, sometimes used in cancer care is ovarian suppression where we actually mm. cause or induce temporary menopause to reduce that activity and that release of, and protect those eggs from being damaged and mm. uh, to hopefully give more of a chance once the treatment's finished to mm. uh, have a really fertile um, experience. Yeah, and even just like in a totally different vein as well, just thinking about cancer and fertility a bit more broadly, I can think of a few people um, that I've worked with who, you know, have very strong family histories of, say, breast cancer or um, cervical ovarian cancers and they're being screened for the the BRCA1, BRCA2 gene and, you know, given that the experiences that they've seen their families go through, they're considering some, some you know, radical measures to reduce their risks and wanting to freeze their eggs before they do so and and there's so many ways that fertility and oncology kind of collide in this way um, as well. So there's certainly lots to think about in this arena. Taylor, if if it's okay to ask you, um, I speak to a lot of people who are thinking about maybe freezing their eggs um, for a variety of different reasons and perhaps they're a little bit on the fence about it because of what they might need to go through physically or what it might mean for their future and so on. Having been through the experience, obviously, in a different context, 
Um, but just knowing that you have, you know, your one egg frozen for maybe a future family planning option when you're ready, or if you ever want to pursue that option, how does it, I guess, make you feel knowing that you, you have that option available to you down the line? Well, I mean, I would definitely recommend the egg freezing process to anyone thinking about it, because if they, they may regret it later if they don't. Um, because it's, for me, it's just feeling like a weight off my shoulders, knowing that I have that one, um, for later, even, even if it is one, it's better than not having anything. Um, so yeah, I just, I would just recommend it, um, to anyone thinking about it. Yeah. Oh, all it takes is one. (laughs) Only takes one. I always say that you just got to get one and then we're away. Right. So it can often feel like a little bit of a numbers game through fertility treatments and, and egg freezing particularly uh, is is big numbers game um, oftentimes. But, you know, I have a lot of people get really distressed about said numbers and I'm like, it only takes one. Don't worry. It could, it could be the golden egg, as I say, <laughs> the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's factory. You just need one <laughs> and you're there. Absolutely. Oh, well, do either of you have anything else to add before we wrap up? I just want to give Taylor a huge pat on the back for the way that she's handled herself through this entire process. It's like you said earlier, Steph, this is fresh. This is this has been only been weeks and the maturity and um, strength that you are showing through your treatment, the lead up, everything has been really, really remarkable. So you should be very proud of yourself. Thank you. Definitely have the down moments, but uh, once I do, I just pick myself up again and soldier on. You're allowed to feel down. It's allowed to be real. Yeah. You are certainly not alone. Um, There are so many people around the world who I know will um, be in their own unique journey, but could definitely resonate with what you've been through. So we really appreciate your time and, and energy as well, which we know is such a valuable commodity when you're going through um, treatment. So we so appreciate that um, and we're wishing you all the very best for the rest of your treatments as well. Thank you as well, Lauren, for joining us. We so appreciate your expertise and I learnt so much myself in this episode, so really appreciate that. Can you let us know where people can connect with <laughs> you online or at Encore Nutrition? Yeah, for sure. And look, thanks so much for having me, Steph, and for letting me bring my sidekick, Taylor, along. I think it's made a big difference to uh, what people will take from this. Um, Very happy for people to reach out to me, connect with us. So Encore Nutrition is the name of our organisation, spelt O-N-C-O-R-E. You can find us online, on the socials. Steph and I follow each other, so you probably find us in... (laughs) Have a little stalk and you'll find us. Um, We also have our own podcast called Encore Nutrition Two Peas in a Podcast. So we'd love for you to have a listen. We also offer free 15-minute phone consultations. So if you do have any burning questions or if anyone you know or love would benefit from a quick chat, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to support you in any way that we can. Yeah, I'll leave all those links in the the show note description as well um, for our listeners to connect with you at Encore because I am always in awe of the amazing work that you you all do at your organisation, so we so appreciate that. All right, well, that's a wrap for today's episode, everyone. I hope you 
got something from today's episode. I know I certainly did. And I will see you in the next one. Bye.